Evolution or revolution? How a master innovator changed the face of trading. They knocked on my door and they said, listen, you've spent a lot of money on this internet thing. You haven't launched it. Cut your losses now. And I said, no, I said, it's going to work. The creative thinking that sees the internet as a business opportunity. We hear from one of the pioneers of the industry, Peter Crudis, who pushed so many boundaries, he rewrote the trading playbook. And there are lots of opportunities. 100 points swing on the Dow. You're going mistakes and losses. Deer in the headlights gets people into trouble. The history of financial markets and the history of economies is cyclical. The Artful Trader. Hi and welcome to The Artful Trader. I'm Michael McCarthy, the Chief Market Strategist at CMC Markets Asia Pacific. Each episode we'll hear the highs and lows from the trading experts and discover their journey to mastering the art of the financial markets. Peter Kratis is the CEO of CMC Markets and one of the pioneers of the industry, embracing the new technology that was the internet and creating Europe's first online trading platform. Peter came from humble beginnings, leaving his local school in East London age 15 to take a job as a telex operator for Western Union in the City of London. Peter went on to work his way up through the FX trading rooms at various banks, working as a chief dealer and global group treasury advisor before spotting an untapped opportunity in the internet to reinvent the trading landscape. In 1989, Peter established his own company, Currency Management Consultants, with just £10,000, one desk and a phone. Today, the company is known globally as CMC Markets and has grown to include 15 offices worldwide and over 60,000 clients. In 2016, CMC Markets successfully floated on the London Stock Exchange and is now recognised internationally as a leader in online trading. From London, please welcome Peter Kratis to The Artful Trader. All right, then fire away, Michael. How are you anyway? Okay. Yes, very well. Thank you. Very well. Peter, if there's anyone that's witnessed the evolution of the markets, it's you. But I'd like to wind things back for our listeners here, back to where you began. Can you, can you tell the listeners a bit about your background and, and how you got into the trading business? Uh, yeah, well, I guess, um, you know, I have to go back a long way, really, and the sort of first real memories of growing up. I mean, I'm, I'm a twin, by the way. I've got a twin brother. So life at home was always very competitive. I always had someone to kick a ball with. And uh, the good news for me was that uh, I was always better at sport than my brother. You know, I'd always like to remind him of that whenever we meet up. And, <laughs> but really, um, you know, I grew up on a council estate in a rough part of East London. Uh, it was about survival. And uh, my dad was an inventor. He invented binge drinking. And uh, so we never had any money. And, of course, at uh, 15... I left school, actually, primarily to to bring some money in. I mean, things are pretty tough at home with my dad and so on. Uh, my mum used to get up at five o'clock in the morning and uh, clean offices. So it was pretty tough. But the thing that really sort of helped me a lot was being a member of the Boy Scouts. Uh, it taught me how to be self-sufficient, how to cook, how to iron, how, how to sew. It got me out of... Uh, out of a difficult home life and off the council estate when we used to go camping uh, many, many weekends. And it really helped me to become an independent person. We used to go in for camping competitions and swimming competitions. And so I really learned to be sort of self-sufficient and, and get through life. And so um, what I did actually was I got a job with Western Union uh, sending telegrams. 
And I learned to type at the age of sort of 15 and a half, 16. And I used to type the ticker tape. Remember the little white ticker tape? And I used to type messages. And in those days, they used to go through a sort of machine. The tape used to go through a machine and send telegrams all around the world. I was doing the night shift on Christmas Day at 16 and a half. And at 18, I was made redundant. But I had a skill typing, which was quite important in those days. And uh, I got a job in a bank trading room where I was able to call up different banks and ask them for the Deutschmark or the French franc or the Peseta rate, spot and forwards for the traders they'd call out, buy and sell. So I used to tie up the deals on telex machines. I won't explain what a telex machine is. If you don't know, just uh, look it up on Google. But basically, it's uh, two computers connecting to each other. And, of course, by the age of 21, I was a trader because I, I learned to trade and I was quite good and actually having quite a good brain and a high IQ helped me become a trader. So it was a backdoor way into the city of London. Not that I planned it that way. It kind of happened that way. But um, once I saw an opportunity, I seized upon it and, um, you know, really worked hard at it. And then from the age of about 21 to the age of 35, I worked in various jobs in the city for a couple of banks and then a broker. I learned about futures. I learned about options, trading deposits, trading foreign exchange. So it got me to the age of about 35, 36, where I did quite well for myself. I had a nice house. I had no mortgage. And then I decided to start my own company and effectively started it off as a small brokerage operation. And the niche for me was to try to offer wholesale prices to the retail market. So, Peter, you started with a single desk and a single phone. Is that what you're telling us? I started, I remember it very well. I hired a small office, serviced offices in the city of London. I think it was number three London Wall Buildings. And I got the basement office. There were no windows. There was just one desk and a telephone. I had no Reuters. And I just went into that office. Rather than working from a bedroom at home, I would get up at 5.30, 6 o'clock because I was used to that. I'd shave, put on a suit, and I'd come into that small office uh, with no views and sit down and work out what I was going to do because I didn't have some big master plan. CMC stands for Currency Management Consultants, actually, where I created a consultancy. And the plan was to talk to big companies about how to hedge some of their forward foreign exchange risk and at the same time look at doing some brokerage operations. I, I wrote to about 100 companies, Sotheby's, uh, Rolls-Royce I wrote to. And I remember getting about a 2% response from the 100 letters. But one of the letters was from Rolls-Royce in Derbyshire. And they said, yeah, we'd be very, very interested in hearing how you could help us hedge our forward currency, please ring this number. So I booked a meeting, which was for six weeks later. And about 10 days before the meeting, they rang up and cancelled the meeting. And I never had the meeting. And I thought, well, you know, being a consultant and helping people with my expertise is just too slow. Uh, it's not dynamic enough. So I just concentrated on the brokerage side. And I started to create you know, trading lines and so on, and, and got going towards the end of um, 1990. Then I had a stroke of luck or misfortune for some, but luck for me. 
Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, remember, in August 1990. Yes. Created masses of volatility and a lot of interest in different currencies, different markets. Metals were going up, currencies were moving around. And so I got lots of sort of potential clients trading, speculating on different currencies. And from 1990 to about 1994, I created a really nice boutique business. I caught by then, I think it was called CMC Corporation. And I had a really nice business that was making money. I didn't draw a salary for a year when I first started the company from 1990 to 91. And then in 1994, I started reading about something called the internet. And uh, bizarrely enough, I thought, well, this is going to be big. You know, I saw the internet the same way, really, as I saw telex machines, whereby you were able to connect to different organizations around the world. But I realized also that it would actually be able to connect individuals to other individuals anywhere around the world. And so I had a real sort of interest in how the internet was going to develop because I remember I used to do money transfers for Western Union. When they first started doing them back in the late 60s, and we used to sort of type up these uh, money mandates and send them to different Western Union offices around the world. And that was really right in its infancy of money transfers. Peter, before we go down that path, could I ask, there's a certain level of daring to go into the unknown like that. You've rattled the established systems. You've opened up those boundaries. What, what does that feel like? What was going through your head? I'll be honest with you. I absolutely love it. I love challenge. I love being disruptive. I love shaking it up because, um, but true entrepreneurs, and there's all sorts of entrepreneurs, some entrepreneurs buy existing businesses and break them up. And some create businesses out of nothing, which is what I did. And we love, we love change and we love challenge because we think that change and challenge gives us a competitive advantage. And actually it does. If you, if you approach it that way, I often uh, used to say to staff at CMC and still do say to staff at CMC, but when I first launched Internet Trading, I, I had about 25 employees in one office in the UK. And those employees, specifically traders, thought that the internet was a threat to their job. And of course, you know, 20 odd years later, we've got a thousand people, we've got offices in 15 countries around the world. So my advice to employees is never fear change, never resist change, always embrace change and work with it. Back in 1996, there's a knock at my door, and I had three directors in the company at the time. They knocked on my door and they said, listen, you've spent a lot of money on this internet thing. You haven't launched it. Cut your losses now. And I said, no. I said, it's going to work. And why that was entrepreneurial, which seems an easy decision now, was at that time, probably nobody in the company wanted me to launch internet trading because they saw it as a threat. The finance director saw it was draining resources. But I was on my own, and I stuck to my guns. How did you know, Peter? How did you know it was going to work? Um, I probably would be slightly disingenuous if I said I thought it was really going to work. But it was that challenge. It was that uncertainty. It was that change that 
really inspires me and encourages me. So, you know, I mean, you never know for sure. I never knew. I mean, when I when I invented Europe's first online trading platform, web pages were static. They weren't streaming. Mobile phones were the size of house bricks and they weren't smartphones. So you never know where the journey takes you. But it's about making sure that you're in the game and just watch the opportunities open up and try and seize those opportunities. I didn't know for sure at that time, but I wanted to keep pursuing it because I thought if it comes off, it could be absolutely fantastic for the company. And if it didn't come off, then, you know, we carry on. I guess it's about assessing risk. But it was also the excitement of it all. And I I was just so determined to to take it to the next level. So uh, to get back to the journey, so... Around 1994, I started reading about the internet. I decided that, you know, uh, it was something that we needed to get into. So I found some developers who were actually telephone software engineers. And we put together what I can only describe is a glorified email service. It was almost like sending an email and uh, someone responded to it quickly and The pricing was manually upgraded. Uh, Back then, there were no streaming Forex prices. We had to do it all manually. So uh, in 1996, October 1996, we finally launched our first platform. It was the first in Europe, probably the first in the world for foreign exchange. At that time, E-Trade and Schwab were launching online share trading, and we had Forex trading. So Effectively, from October 1996, my whole world changed because we started to get more and more customers, more efficiency, more transparency, and actually drove down the costs of trading financial products online to the retail market. Peter, what, Peter, sorry to interrupt, but what drove the desire to open the markets up to the masses? Well, I thought that was, uh, it wasn't necessarily a noble cause. I didn't want to be the big pioneer of bringing retail into the big financial markets. But there was a demand there and the service wasn't there from the big institutions because they just wanted to do the big ticket stuff. And that was the opportunity. Um, you know, if we could tap into that market, there was there was a big opportunity there. So... It was really looking at the market and deciding where I could make a difference. And that was where it was. And I used the internet to get to individuals rather than telephones and telex machines because people couldn't afford telex machines. And they also didn't need Reuters machines then because they could look at our pricing for the latest up-to-date pricing. Actually, on the platform, the very first platform, I used to stream Reuters Forex prices next to our prices to show clients exactly where the market was and so they could buy and sell around our pricing and compare them to the underlying market. In 2000, we established an office in Sydney. And at the same time, we launched a project product which I can only describe as a generic financial product, a CFD, a contract for difference. Now, contract for differences and CFDs are not new. Um, I mean, if you take the ASX 200, the futures price in Sydney, that is a contract for difference. It may be traded on an exchange, but CFD is purely a settlement term. It's not a product in its own right. 
So, you know, just to explain that a bit better, is that if you buy a futures contract through your futures broker on the ASX 200, at expiration, you cannot take delivery of one one hundredth of one share. You can only own one share. And so what you have to do with your futures contract is to close it out. If you're long, you sell. If you're short, you buy. And the difference is your profit and loss. And that's a contract for difference. The S&P 500, the Dow Jones, the FTSE, the CAT, the DAX are all contract for difference. to just traded on the futures market. We took that concept and we applied it across all financial products. And what we had in early 2000 was a platform, an internet platform, whereby you could trade all these thousands of different products from one account, as opposed to opening a stockbroking account, a futures account, a commodities account, a foreign exchange account. So everything was on one platform. And I mean, being able to have all of these products on one platform uh, enabled us to really uh, build scalability into what we do as a company and uh, and to drive down costs for the retail market to trade all of these different products across all the time zones uh, from around the world. So we're up to the early 2000s, yeah. Peter. We're up on the verge of the trading revolution. Yes. What happened next? We started to expand around the world. Um, We opened an office in Sydney. It was our first overseas office. I mean, you know, I can only describe the period from sort of 2000 and and really up until today as an explosive period. In 2000, we had the dot-com bubble. 2001, we had the awful 9-11 events. And since then, there's been the Swiss and Euro-Swiss uncoupling. I mean... There's been the Brexit vote. I mean, there's been all sorts of seismic events. Uh, We had the GFC, for example. Yeah, the global economic crisis. So all of that fuels the interest of the retail market. Because if you look around the world now, especially in the UK and, and also in Australia and other countries around the world, governments are allowing individuals to control their own finances in tax efficient ways. I mean, in the UK, we've seen a deregulation of people's personal pension funds, whereby you're able to take large lump sums out after a certain period of time and manage those funds yourself within your own pension. We call it SIPs. I think you call it superannuation. Yes, we do. In Australia. And so that's liberating the retail market. So um, there's a lot, lot more interest. I mean, Brexit in June 2000. 16, which I'm really happy about. And back in 2016, it affected the stock markets. It affected the value of sterling, and uh, sterling dropped, you know, 20%. So, you know, when you switch on your TV screens now, there's always something related or, you know, directly or indirectly to the financial markets. And the retail market is being encouraged to manage its own financial affairs. So, And this plays into our hands because you can trade the financial markets tax efficiently in the UK. You can use leverage around the world. You can get access to things like Facebook and Alibaba IPOs and so on. So, you know, it's a great space to be in. 
Peter, just as technology allowed you and CMC to bring the markets to the, the uh, aspirational man in the street, it's also allowed the big players to bring their algorithms to bear in the market. Does the future of the markets belong to the robots? So I think it's a bit too early to tell. I mean, ultimately, if you're trading the financial markets, you have to get it right. And there's all sorts of algorithms. And I've been on this journey. I remember back in the 1980s, my chief executive, who I worked for at a brokerage company, used to, to update his daily chart, his, week, his charting book daily, but he used to get a printed version every week from McGraw-Hill in Chicago. And I remember back in 1987, when the big stock market crashed, we had a big hurricane uh, in the UK and uh, trees were down. And I remember him sellotaping two extra pages onto his chart book because the the downline was so long that uh, his book couldn't take it, which was crazy. (laughs) Yeah, and, and I used to do the charts then as well, and he was educating me on how to do them. When he got the new book on the Monday, he'd hand me over the old book with all these updates. And he handed me this book with two pages sellotaped to the bottom. And I looked at him and he handed me the book and I just threw it straight in the bin. And I said, yeah, you know what you can do with that. I said, that's ridiculous. You know, why didn't you predict this movement? Fair call. But um, <laughs> the thing about robots is that I think there's a place for them. And there's all different level. I mean, we read about high-frequency traders. We do not allow robotic trading across our platform because we're across a public network. And effectively, a lot of robots or high-frequency traders are trading market and technology latency. I mean, that's the key. If you're trading latency, you're not actually trading the market and you're not financial traders. Um. But will robots replace? I don't think so, because people like the experience. They like the control. They like the success of getting something right, and they love the challenge. And that's something. I mean, what's the point in just pushing a button and letting somebody else get all the excitement out of your trading and then going off and playing golf? It sounds great, and I've tried it myself a few times, and it's great for a week, and then you get bored. You want that thrill, excitement, the adrenaline rush. You want to watch everything that's going on around the world, all the interrelated activities. And that's the excitement. It's a very exciting thing to do, especially when you get it right. If you get it wrong, it's the worst thing in the world, but that's another story. Indeed. Peter, how will the industry keep evolving? What do you think are the next big changes? So the industry is evolving really right across the board. I think regulations are changing all the time and they're changing in line with government expectations. They don't want clients to treat the financial markets like a casino. This is not red or black. This is, you know, quite an intellectual but exciting way to invest money. So regulators and governments are encouraging individuals individuals to take control of their finances, which is a good thing. Um, So I think that will keep going, keep going, keep going. I mean, now probably about 60% of our business is done on mobile devices. So uh, mobile technology will keep improving. I used to have an iPhone and I used to have an iPad. Now I have an iPhone 
7, I think it is, plus where I don't use my iPad. I just have that screen so I can I can trade from that iPhone. Not that I trade, but I can monitor from it. But I haven't traded from the moment uh, I started CMC back in 1990. Uh, I used to be a trader and I traded very well and I made good money. And with the profits from trading, I started CMC. But the day I started CMC, I haven't traded personal accounts at all. I've just focused on CMC. So, Peter, you've been on both sides of the trade. You've been on both sides of the market. You were a trader. Now you're on the other side of it. You know that when traders get together, one of the things they discuss most is the trades they've done. Have you got a a memorable trade? Is there one that stands out that either you executed or somebody executed on on the CMC platform? Um, the, The trade that springs to my mind was really the trade that kind of set me up on the path to starting my own company. So I was working for a futures broker. I set up trading rooms for them. They were a Middle Eastern company. I set up a trading room for them in Jordan and Washington and Geneva and London. And we used to have some, you know, some big clients and stuff. But one day I said, I wanted to trade my own account. And they said, that's great, no problem. And we used to split everything 50-50. So whatever trade I did, didn't matter how big it was, how small it was. The company got half and I got half. And I can remember the Russian president, Gorbachev, speaking at the United Nations. And Gorbachev stood up at the United Nations and said, we're going to cut military spending. And I'm sitting there watching the speech in the trading room. And I thought, wow, this is going to be good for America because it means they can improve their budget deficits. So I loaded up on dollar mark, I bought dollars, I sold Deutschmarks because that was the most liquid product at the time. And I did my first $100 million deal. And I think it was $100 million for me and $100 million for the company. And bosh, the market went up about a percent in no time at all. And I banked a couple of hundred thousand dollars for me and a couple of hundred thousand dollars for the company. And effectively, I took that money and started CMC Markets. That's probably the most memorable trade of my life. Peter, you've since gone on to set up the Peter Quattis Foundation. You're the most significant supporter of the Duke of Edinburgh Awards and you support other important organisations in the UK and around the globe. Why have you chosen the philanthropy route? So if you remember at the beginning of the podcast, I talked about when I was in the Boy Scouts. I'm a big supporter of the Boy Scouts as well. People often ask me, I talk, I talk at universities, I love talking to young people and budding entrepreneurs. And they said to me, if you had gone to university, would you be as successful as you are today? And my answer to that is, I don't know. However, I know one thing for sure, is that if I hadn't have been in the Boy Scouts, I wouldn't be where I am today. The Boy Scouts taught me so much and took so much pressure off of me. So... Drawing on my own experiences, as I became more and more successful and felt the need to give more and more back to disadvantaged children, I targeted these organisations that help young people uh, when they're you know, going through difficult periods and gets them on their feet. So Duke of Edinburgh's award scheme, the Prince's Trust, the Boy Scouts, all sorts of organisations that help young people. So it's, it's fantastic. I love it. Um, I'll tell you one story. So I was at a Princess Trust event. A young girl came up to me and she said to me, thank you very much. And I just went through, oh, you know, congratulations. Well done. You're doing well, putting your life around. 
She said, no, no, no. She said, effectively, she said, look, cut all the bullshit. She said to me, listen, she said, I was in prison for a bad thing. I was part of a gang and I deserve to be in prison. But when I was in the prison, I learned about the Prince's Trust and the Prince's Trust cannot do what it's doing without people like you giving it money. And she said, your money indirectly has allowed me to come out of prison uh, to start my own company. But more importantly, my two kids have been taken out of care and they're living with me now. And that's what the Prince's Trust has done for me. And if it wasn't for people like you, then I wouldn't have been able to have got out of this terrible situation that was in. So, I mean, there's thousands of stories like that helping young people. And that one I remember well, because then she threw her arms around me and gave me a big hug and we were both sobbing. So um, it was fantastic. Special moment. Peter, what would, what would you like your legacy to be? Uh, I don't think too much about legacies. I'm a bit selfish. I love working. Uh, I've been working for 50 years next year. I'm 65 next year, although I look a lot younger than I am. Um, and um, I like working. I've got no plans to retire. My kids have grown up. My youngest is a doctor. My other one works in finance. I've got a great family. Maybe when people look back, they say this guy came out of nowhere uh, I've got a twin brother that drives a black cab and my older brother drives a black cab and they, I'd like people to look back and say this guy had no advantages in life whatsoever. Um, his family couldn't afford to educate him, yet he ignored all of that. He got on with it. He worked hard and he didn't do drugs and he didn't drink a lot and he didn't smoke. I eat too much, I eat chocolate. <laughs> it's too, too bad. Pleased to hear you human, Peter. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> but, you know, this I'd like people to look at me as an example of somebody that has made a lot with his life out of very disadvantaged upbringing and hopefully be an inspiration to others. That's magnificent. Peter, thanks very much for your time today. Well, it was a pleasure, Michael, and I uh, look forward to catching up with you soon. Thanks a lot. That was Dr. Peter Crudis, the CEO of CMC Markets. Read more about him on a blog post available only on our website at theartfultraderpodcast.com, where you can also access some limited time offers for new and current clients. The Artful Trader is an original podcast series by CMC Markets, a global leader in online trading. To stay up to date with new episodes, subscribe now on iTunes or wherever you download your favourite podcasts. Please be sure to share it with your friends and leave us a rating. Thanks for listening. I'm Michael McCarthy and this is The Artful Trader.